Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Hello and welcome to another edition of Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. Of course, a podcast going beyond the badge to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response place to tell their stories and talk about the cases that have impacted their lives. And today, uh, we're going to give you an inside look at our court system, both from a law enforcement perspective and from the point of view from someone sitting right there in the jury box. I think it's going to be really uh, interesting discussion today. But before we start off, we bring in our host, a guy that I would call to bail me out should things ever go sideways in my life. That is Mr. Michael Warren. How are you, sir? That, of course, is assuming that I'm not sitting there beside you. Oh, so, hey, yeah, look. Just throwing it out there. What's the old uh, phrase? It's probably a, a terrible thing to say here, but a, a friend will, uh, if you murder somebody, a friend will help you. Help you hide the body? <laughs> yeah. A good friend will bury, help you bury it or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, we're, we're, this is one of those things where in our end of the year episode a couple of weeks ago, we talked about some of the potential guests we'd like to have on the podcast this year. And we also talked about a few specific topics that we wanted to cover. And one of the topics I brought up originated right after I served as uh, the jury foreman in a criminal case here in Union City at uh, the Obine County Courthouse. I'm currently in the midst of a four-month jury service. And so I thought, hey, it would be interesting to talk about perspective of a juror where I've sat in the jury box and you as someone in law enforcement who has actually testified in open court. So that kind of spawns today's discussion. I thought it'd be an interesting look at some of the uh, things we get right, some of the things that maybe we don't get right, and just kind of an overview of the jury system. When you think about how long the the current system has been in place, uh, it's been around a long time. And yet it's amazing how many people really don't have an idea of how it works. Kind of an important part of our, our governmental system. Well, you know, Sixth Amendment, it's... Uh, I've got it right here in front of me and just read it right in straight form. In all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and the district wherein the crime had been committed. So I guess that we can kind of start there. The The idea of an impartial jury. A lot of folks say the jury system we have here in uh, America, it's the best system there is. And while I think it is a great system, uh, there are some flaws in it, I think. I was going to want to get your opinion on it, but I do think it is the best system we have available because I, I don't know that you're going to get a 100% impartial jury just based on some of the things that I've witnessed, but I think the outcome we got in our particular case was the right one. So in that instance, the, the jury trial system is still working. I think it's important to point out that overwhelmingly, and I mean overwhelmingly, juries get it right. They do a good job. Overwhelmingly, the people who sit on the juries take it seriously. But the impartial part, when it was initially devised, there was no TV and there was no radio and there was no news outside of a newspaper that was printed on somewhat irregular basis. There certainly were no phones. So I think that that right there is one of the, the most difficult parts of that is how do we make sure that the jury is impartial. Well, I think that takes place, and I, I've watched it happen play out, and I'll tell some stories here, that voir dire section, right before, you know, you whittle everything down, you start with, so I walk into the courtroom, and there's, you know, 50, 75 potential jurors. That's kind of the pool. And then from there, they call up like 25 people, and then that's when the voir dire gets underway. The lawyers start asking questions. And my particular case was uh, 
a drug case. So they would ask questions like, do you think uh, marijuana should be legal? Do you think this uh, selling drugs is bad? Do you are, you know, do you think it's okay in some instances? And there are some people that raise their hand and I, my hat's off to them. They're like, yeah, I mean, if that's the only way he can make money, you know, so I appreciate your honesty. But there were a couple of instances where I sat in that jury selection pool. And I think one of the last things that the defense attorney said, he said, if you were me and you were asking this particular jury, do you think you would make a good juror? Two women, I kid you not, raised their hand and said no. And it almost took the defense attorney by surprise. And he said, no. And he said, I got to ask you why. And she said, I just really don't want to be here today. Other woman said the exact same thing. And she said, you know, you asked me to tell the truth. So defense attorney said, I appreciate your honesty. Uh, judge, uh, motion to excuse. And they were let go. So you can find ways out. I think there are people that do take it seriously. I know I did. But then there are some people that are just showing up because they have to be there. Think about it from the perspective of a small business owner. If you run a construction business and it's you and maybe two other people, you missing time has a direct impact on your family's income because you do get a check from the court, but you certainly ain't going to get rich off of it. Well, and there are instances where the judge will ask, are there any reasons why you can't serve? And a lot of times people will say, listen, I am a small business owner. My livelihood and the livelihood of my employees depends on us operating. And I have seen the judge excuse people for that. Now, I have also seen the judge decline some uh, excuses people give. One time I was actually in the pool for a federal uh, jury court down in Jackson, Tennessee, and a woman raised her hand and said, Judge, I can't be on this trial. And judge said, why not? She said, well, my son plays for the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. And the judge looked at her and said, uh, they still play those games on Saturdays, right? <laughs> she said, yeah, we like to travel the game. And he said, no. Uh, you'll be all right. You can serve in this jury. My oldest son uh, received a jury summons from federal court back in uh, November, and he was supposed to start serving in December. Well, he manages a UPS store. You can imagine what the busiest month is for a UPS store. It's December. Right. And so it, when when he was crafting his response, I said, yeah, listen, you need to make it clear that you're not asking to be let go from duty. You're asking that it be postponed. And they were able to work with him and, and were able to get it postponed. But it, it comes back to if we get stuck with somebody on a jury that doesn't want to be there or feels that they are suffering financial loss from being there, could that have a negative impact for the prosecutor, the defense or both? I think all the way around, because I mean, you look at this and especially I saw people that the ones that didn't genuinely didn't want to be there. And some people showed up and they said, I, I'm sleepy. I'm just, I can't stay awake. My eyes are closing. And I'm thinking a person's livelihood is in our hands. This was a criminal case. He was facing some serious jail time. And I thought I'm going to give my attention to this whole thing because I don't want it on my conscience that I didn't give a hundred percent. And you know, walk into this courtroom and the judge said, if you'd like to take notes, you can. Don't let that stand in the way of the testimony that you're about to hear. And so I opted to take notes. There were only maybe four out of the 12 or 13 jurors taking notes. Now, I've seen several studies and articles about the percentage of information that people retain anywhere from 10 to 30 percent when they're listening to someone. So I know that all those people in the box that weren't taking notes, they, there's no way they could have remembered everything. 
And so I'm over here, you know, jotting things down, but there's a lot of people that just show up and they're just like, tell me a story and I'll listen. That's one of the problems that I had when I went through the jury process. Think about it from the perspective, uh, uh, oftentimes people get mad at their waitress or their waiter. If the waiter, they don't write the order down. It's like, don't you want to write that down? Do you remember it from here to the kitchen? And that's just a small food order. Imagine how much information is going out during one of these criminal trials. You're expected to remember that. So I I agree with you. But there's another part of what you read, though, that that I think is is something worth talking about. And that's the concept of a jury of your peers, because the people on the jury are your peers only in the broadest sense of the term, because Mm -hmm. peers, you know, when you talk about a peer reviewed journal, those are people that have the same education and specialty and that type of thing that you do. That's not what you what you get in a jury pool. I think it can be both a blessing and a curse. But one of the questions I was I was really excited to ask you was what were your impressions of the people that you were on the jury with? Well, there's a scene in uh, A Time to Kill with uh, Matthew McConaughey and Samuel Jackson. And, you know, they, they get the jury and it's like 12 white men and women. You know, Samuel Jackson says this is a jury of my peers you know, it's kind of that line of thinking about where you live in what community you're in and who makes that up and how the lawyers whittle that down in that jury process. On the particular one that I was on, there were seven women, five men. So that was balanced gender wise. But I think there were out of those 12 or 13, I think maybe 11, 10 or 11 were you know white. So it's unbalanced in that sense. And you had some people that were more talkative than others, some people that didn't, you know, reserved. And that's an uncomfortable situation, especially when you get into deliberations of voicing your opinion, because a lot of people, they don't want to speak up. They don't want to disagree with the majority. And that's why I made a point during those deliberations to say, hey, if you have an outlook that's different from what we're talking about, please speak your mind because we need to examine all angles. There's a book called Noise by Daniel Kahneman, and they address that right there specifically. It's not just in a jury, it's in any meeting. If you're discussing something and somebody puts forth an idea, oftentimes the idea that people go with is the first one because so many people are unwilling or uncomfortable in speaking up against it. I don't know how to fix that. I don't know if it can be fixed, but it's something that, that people should be aware of. But but I, I got to ask you this, though. I, I want to take you back even further if we could. Okay. How did you find out you had jury duty? So I was telling you, uh, usually I go out to greet my mailman every day, but just particular day, I didn't go to the door. And I had a note on my door that said um, registered mail. I had to go to the post office to pick it up from the Obine County Sheriff's Office. And I was like, oh, no, what did I do? Because, you know, at the time we had the speeding cameras in town. I thought, oh, we've we've compiled too many speeding tickets. <laughs> They're going to take me away. And so the next day the mailman came back and he had the, ma- the registered letter with me. And he said, don't freak out, dude. It's just a jury summons. <sighs> but when you see when you see Hobine County Sheriff's Office, you're like, oh, I'm freaking out a little bit. So, yeah, I opened it up. And uh, the length of service is different in different spots. I did federal uh, juries down in Jackson a couple of years ago. And that was, a, I think, a one month service. This one is four months long. So my service started in October. I still have a couple of weeks to go. It doesn't end until, until the 30th of January. So, and, and I've only been called down there three times. Usually they're canceled, but I mean, it does put a disruption in your schedule, especially with this particular podcast. I've had to shift and pivot a little bit around jury service. 
I mean, it also impacts your family. I mean, you, you can't really make travel plans, even though you're pretty certain it's going to be canceled. Uh, it limits you. And it's not a complaint. It's just a recognition that it does cause hardship for our jurors. So honesty time on your part, once you realized what it was for, what was your thoughts about it? What was your reaction? Were, were you excited? Were, were you nervous? What, what were you thinking when you realized what it was? Well, I think when I went down there as I've mentioned on this podcast, I'm a crime show junkie. I love watching investigation discovery. So I get into that sort of thing. I was looking forward to hearing the details of a case and trying to come up with the best possible outcome based on those facts that I've been given. Now, as because we were busy with this podcast, I also did try to clear my conscience and throw in the fact that when they asked, the lawyers ask, are you or any members of your family members of law enforcement or do you know anyone in law enforcement? I would throw up my hand every time, you know, trying to say, think maybe I might get out of this jury process because I was so busy. And I said, well, I, I co-host a law enforcement podcast. <laughs> and I think would the second like time hat? that I was asked that question, the lawyer was like, oh, so I bet you've heard some stories. And I said, yes, sir, I have. <laughs> so I think that he actually liked that. And that's why I got on that jury. It's interesting to me. I've been called for jury duty a, a couple times. I've never sat on a jury because as soon as I find out what my profession was, I was gone. But I remember going through Vaudier and one of the first ones, and it was a state level case and it was a drug case. And the officer was a Michigan state trooper and the defense attorney is uh, going through asking questions and he's asking this one jury he goes, Hey, do you think that despite what your thoughts are, your feelings are about narcotics that you can listen to the evidence vote for a verdict based off the evidence only can you be a fair and impartial juror and the guy goes sir the way i look at it if there's smoke there's fire <laughs> and the attorney kind of looked over the judge and said, your honor and so let, let's talk about that for a second let's talk about yeah. challenges there are several types and the number you get depend on the type of uh trial that you're on uh, but there are challenges for cause which would this guy right here obviously he's telling you can't be impartial but both sides will get some peremptory challenges where they don't have to give a reason for dismissing a juror but they're limited so so they have to be used it's like timeouts in football if you use them all in the first quarter they may not be there at the end of the half when you need them the most and, yeah. and so i i think and, and i'm not an attorney I, I would have to think that that's a very nerve-wracking decision yes or no to throw down one of those valuable challenges that you have well and i hate to keep going back to tv and movies but that's my basis for the court system apparently that's I'm, I'm your everyday Joe American. Uh, there's a great scene in uh, Devil's Advocate with Keanu Reeves where they bring him in just to pick a jury. That's his only job is to listen to these jurors talk and pick a jury and find the correct one and, and get the ones that they need to be there. And I think that is an art. That is a skill because you're right. If you run out of challenges, you might get the person you may not necessarily want. And I, the first time I was called down there, I almost made it into the jury pool or the jury box, the final 12 but they had, I was on the outside, there was three left and I was one of those three and I got dismissed and I didn't have to be on that civil case. So they do take their time and whittle things down. It's, it's an intent. I would say that's probably the worst part of jury duty services at voir dire section where they just sit and ask you questions, sometimes personal questions that you yes. may feel uncomfortable answering in an open court like that. But if, if the system's to work, it has to be answered honestly. 
I'll ask right. you this, and you've already mentioned a couple of them, but when you when you realized you were going to be going for jury duty, what TV shows or movies popped into your head that said, okay, this is what this adventure is going to look like? I really didn't know. So I watched tons of these shows on Investigation Discovery. I liked more of the reality-based shows. So I've seen the court proceedings kind of play out, but it's much, much different. You know, that's even, even that is a, a form of reality television. It's much different when you get in front of an actual judge and lawyers, and then the accused is sitting right across from you. Once I got in that jury box and I was a member of the jury, I'm not going to lie, even though I was looking forward to my jury service, it was a little intimidating because you have a lot of the pressure on you. One thing that I thought was interesting is usually when a judge walks in a courtroom, everyone rises for the judge. After the jury was selected, the judge looked at us and said, you guys are now the judges we will stand for you when you walk in the courtroom. I thought, well, that's kind of neat. You know, the judge is standing for us. And it's important that they emphasize how important the job is that's about to be done. Now, uh, you can, hopefully you can answer this honestly, because I know how I would have felt. We go into jury duty and our assumption is that it's going to be a criminal case because I like watching the crime shows too. Sure. How disappointed would you have been if instead of a crime case, you got a civil case and somebody's suing somebody over a property line. Well, and the first one that I was called to was a civil case. It did sound interesting. It had some very interesting facts to it. I got to hear what it was about. I didn't ultimately get picked for that jury. And again, in a, in a civil case, uh, it has to be the preponderance of the evidence. So if you look at the scales of justice, uh, the way they described it in the court, in order to find whoever's right in that case, the scales have to be tipped just a little bit. So 51-49 is okay. Uh, but in a criminal case, it has to be unanimous. So there was a little bit more, hmm, this will be more interesting in a criminal case because it's got, you know, you got the cops coming in and the, and the drugs are involved. But the civil case, this one that I was, uh, I could have sat in on sounded interesting, but I'm sure there's a lot of ones that are out there that you're like, oh, get me out of this. It's just too much information that's I don't want to listen to it all day. Somebody suing their former business partner for accounting practices. Now, now you're going right. through the ledger. Blah, yeah. blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Now, now, one thing that did trouble me, and I wanted to touch on this, is when I did get picked for jury service, uh, the lawyers gave their opening statements. Then we went to lunch. Now, because I live in West Tennessee, they fed us an incredible lunch from Autry's Country Kitchen down in Troy. That is a non-paid Plug for Autry's Country <laughs> Kitchen. I'm talking uh, fried chicken, mashed taters. We had uh, uh, fried apples, big chocolate chest pie. And then we go back and we got to sit there and we've got our bellies full and we're sitting there listening to the lawyers talk. And I remember after the day was over, one of the jurors that I was in the box with came up to me and he said, I don't know, man. There after lunch, I nodded off for a little bit. <laughs> and I'm thinking... You, you nodded. There's a guy that's on trial right across from us, man. You know, don't nod off. That that kind of freaked me out. And I thought, never get arrested or go on trial, you know, because I don't want somebody nodding off in my jury box. To me, your attorney, can, can you please make sure that they're getting a light lunch? You know, maybe a little salad, you know, some yeah. definitely something to drink with some caffeine and yeah, because there's some important stuff coming up here. But but you know what, though, we make light of it and it's made light of it in movies and TVs. But it really is a solemn duty that we have as Americans to ensure to take our part in making sure that we have the most fair system possible. Yeah. And I, one thing that the judge said that I never really considered, and I, I think he put us as jurors 
on a pedestal a little bit higher than they we should be. But he said jury service, in his opinion, was a step down from military service. He said that's how important that he saw, you know, your service as a member of the jury. And while I, I do believe it is important, I'm not out there risking my life. I'm just sitting there listening to what the lawyers are telling me. So uh, I think military service is much more important than jury service, but uh, it, it has its place in our society. But, but I bet the defendant would disagree with you. Probably, yeah. Not yet. That's his life sitting in your hand or her life sitting in your hand. So so what was the biggest surprise when you first get there to the court? What was the biggest surprise? I, I don't know what the biggest surprise was. Just the fact that it sounded like in the opening statements that it was a clear-cut case and that they would the prosecution would be able to, to prove it fairly seamlessly. And once we got along, it wasn't the case. Actually, I think the biggest surprise for me, now that I think about it, is... On TV and in movies, when I watch these things, the defense attorneys or the court-appointed attorneys always some, I don't want to say always, but many times are portrayed as people who are just saddled with a case that they don't want to try. You know, they, they're a court-appointed attorney. But this particular attorney was on his game. He was knocking things down. I was so surprised at how well-prepared he was and some of the arguments that he was making, because that went against the um, the stereotype that I was kind of used to by watching TV shows. I remember when I re- received my first jury summons to, uh, for a jury, not not to testify. And man, the way they made it sound, I thought I was going on a deployment. And, and so I, you know, I'm taking books to read and everything. I've got uh, Tom Clancy's Red Storm Rising that if you've ever seen it, you know, several inches thick. The hurry up and wait was hard for me. The hurry up, get there, and then just sitting and waiting. There is a lot of that. There's, you know, I I brought a book a couple of times where you sit and you do, you hurry up, you wait. But then when you, once you get in the thick of things, it really does start to get interesting because then they start to present the facts of the case. The witnesses come in, you start listening to the witnesses. And I guess that is a nice transition into talking about your uh, perspective in the jury system, because you, as a member of law enforcement, have testified in open court. So how many times have you been called to testify in, in various cases? Yeah, you, you got to remember that, that testimony can be anything from a traffic ticket up to a murder case. So literally, literally hundreds of times. I didn't even consider that. So I was always thinking like big cases. So you've been there a lot. So, so I've literally testified in hundreds of times in court. Most were traffic tickets in the state of Michigan. The, the lowest court hearing, and I hate using the term lowest, is called an informal hearing. And an informal hearing is, is involving a civil infraction, which is traffic ticket. And neither side's represented by an attorney. It's just the officer, the driver, and the, uh, the magistrate. But you still get sworn in and you make your case. They make their case and the decision's made. But that type of testimony prepares you for the big ones because that's what you do in the big ones too. You're sworn in, you tell your story, you answer the questions and a decision is made. Well, that, you make it sound simple and, and on face value, it is kind of simple, but there, I would think there has to be an added pressure on you because if something goes wrong in your testimony and it could literally tip the scales one way or the other for that jury. So how, how do you prepare for that? Because I know that's the goal of the attorneys is they want to try to throw you off your game. And so is it something that you practice through those uh, other appearances? Are there techniques that you're taught when you uh, are coming up as a, as a law enforcement officer where you know you're going to go to court? How do you prepare for those 
things you can't prepare for, I guess. It's especially in your your bigger cases, you know, the cases where, where people, you know, murder and stuff like that, where people could potentially be going away for a long time. There is a lot of preparation, and I've never said on the defense side, but you, you and I, we've seen it in the, the crime shows. There's a lot of preparation on that side, but there's also a lot of preparation on the, the prosecutor side. I, I can remember sitting there with Vic and our prosecutor for the Cameron Sanders case that we talked about uh, a few episodes ago. You know, you're up there for days at the prosecutor's office before the trial even begins, and you're going through, I mean, I mean, just think about this right here. Does the order that the witnesses are called, does that make a difference? I would say so, yes. There's this 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 going back and forth about who should appear first and why. And okay, well, what what information? You know, they always say that attorneys should never ask questions that they don't know what the answer is going to be. No surprises, because surprises, they kill you. But you sit there day after day, and I'm not talking about Monday through Friday and eight and five. You know, you're staying there late at night and you're going through the stuff and, you know, you go around this table. Where's our weak point? You know, where's the most likely point of attack going to be? And then once you identify it, okay, what can we do to address that? It's worthwhile. I mean, if you've got a good case and, and you know you got a bad guy you're trying to put away, that activity, that effort is worth it. So when you're on the witness stand, are you instructed to be more Joe Friday, just the facts, ma'am, or are you supposed to be more relaxed and try to tell the story in your own words? What what works best? There has been a shift, you know, in law enforcement in general. It used to be, you know, just the facts, but we're not talking to computers. We're not talking to robots. Well, one of the things that young officers struggle with is I'm answering a question, but I'm not talking to the attorney. I'm talking to That's the jury. That's a point. I'm glad you brought that up. I'm talking to the jury. So so Vic and I, we had a case where it, it started up in uh, up in Genesee County, and they ended up coming down to uh, our city. There was, it was a kidnapping, a jewelry heist, all this type stuff. So when we went to trial, because the first criminal activity took place in Genesee, that's where the trial was, was heard. The, the first case was actually a dual case. There were two defense teams, there were two defendants, and there were two juries. And that one was probably one of the ones I felt the most uncomfortable on because I'm used to being able to sit up there on the stand and either look slightly to my left or slightly to my right to be able to talk to the jury. But because it was a double jury, at points I'm having to turn completely around in my oh, seat yeah. to look back behind. And that's a lot of a people to address. You're not trying to make it personal, but you're trying to speak to them personally. Right. And I struggle with this, buddy. Uh, you know, they're always telling you, don't get into a war of words with the attorney. Because that's what they want. Yeah. It's once they get under you emotionally. And, and so, sometimes you know, I just couldn't help myself. The Cameron Sanders trial, I can remember the defense attorney getting up there and saying, now, uh, Detective Warren, as a police officer, you see everything, don't you? And my response was, boy, I sure wish we did. It'd make cases like this a lot easier. <laughs> yeah. See, yeah. You don't want to get too out there. You don't, you know, but, poking the poking the lawyer a little bit. But but I felt like I was going to explode if I didn't do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and I wasn't wasn't poking fun at him personally, but it's an, another thing that they teach you. And it's, and it's a good rule for anybody. Just answer the question. Nothing more, nothing less. Yeah, because I, I saw where w there was a member of the drug task force that was uh, testifying in our case, 
And you could tell that he had testified quite a bit because you're right. He would turn away from the lawyer and look at the jury box and talk to us and explain the answer. Whereas they had um, someone who was working undercover for the police department and she was a CI. Yes. A criminal informant. There you go. She was a CI and you could tell that she wasn't used to testifying. So she was talking to the lawyer. And I'm not quite sure on a subconscious level if that affected me or not, but I did notice that the difference in how they addressed the the members of the jury. I don't care if if the attorney believes my answer. I only care if the jury believes my answer. If you believe it is the attorney, but the jury doesn't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't help. One of the biggest things that can help you be an effective witness is to be an effective report writer. If you document the case properly, when you're prepping for the trial and you're going back through your report and you've got all this information, all these details, it makes it much easier to testify. Unfortunately, there are some people in our profession, they cut corners. And when it comes time for trial, it's hard for them. And that does have an effect on the jury, because in our particular case, it was a uh, about the sale of cocaine from one person to another person. And they had video footage. So at the beginning of the trial, in the back of my head, even though I didn't, no way had my mind made up, I thought, well... We got video evidence. This is going to be, sounds like it's going to be pretty simple to, to figure out. Well, they showed the video in court and the video wasn't as crisp and clear as I thought it was going to be. They showed the drugs exchanging hands, but it never, see, I never had on camera. She was good at showing the guy's face. She was good at showing how the, the drugs were transacted, you know, transacted from one person to another, but we never got to see the money change hands. And that was an extremely important part of our decision and uh, we ended up finding him not guilty of the sale of cocaine, but the facilitation, which was a lesser charge. Well, we might as well talk about this now because I think it lends itself well. When we talk about burden of proof, and you already talked about, hey, with, with a civil case, it's preponderance of the evidence, more one way than the other. But when you talk about burden of proof in a criminal case, we're talking about beyond a reasonable doubt. The problem has become is that we have become an unreasonable society. And as a result, the, the jury instructions often are very long. Uh, I can remember a, a murder case where the judge is telling the jury, said, listen, when we talk about reasonable doubt, the doubt must be reasonable. It would be unreasonable to believe that an alien came down and went into the mobile home and killed this, this child. That's not a reasonable doubt. It's not a removal of any doubt. It's just beyond a reasonable doubt. And I think sometimes that perhaps that's the most difficult thing for jurors to grasp. Yeah, because you have to assume when it comes to juries, you're looking at the low, you always get go the lowest common denominator. And it's sad that the judge actually has to say out loud, it's unreasonable that an alien would come down and do this. But you have to plan out for the lowest common denominator and say, well, we have to cover our bases here because people, like I mentioned earlier, Sometimes they're just not comfortable speaking up. And even though it's a small setting of 12, 13 people in this jury room, this jury deliberation room, it's still quite intimidating because we sat down at the end of the trial when we went back to deliberate and somebody said, well, I guess we need to elect a jury foreman. And Michael, I told you this, there were 11 people that turned their heads and looked directly at me and said, we elect you. I I said, are you sure? I said, I'm basing all my knowledge on TV and movies that I've watched about how to be a jury foreman. I don't really know how to do this, but I'll I'll take on the responsibility. And it is it is quite intimidating because once the verdict is read in open court, the jury foreman has to kind of like speak up and say, I was the jury foreman and the defendant's looking right at you. And you're like, 
listen, I, it wasn't just me. It's yeah. 11 other people made this I'm just decision. just a person here. Yeah, I'm just the guy that's delivering the news. Well, so, so that brings up a good point here. What do you think would be interesting for somebody like me who's never sat in a jury deliberation room? What, what do you think would be interesting for me to know goes on behind those doors? I think you find out the different types of personalities of people. Now, I want to redeem the guy that I talked about earlier that said he, he, he nodded off after lunch. Uh, that guy, even though he said he nodded off a little bit, he was the most engaging during the deliberations. And he was you know, talking about the facts of the case. So apparently he nodded off, but he woke up in time to get the good stuff. But there are a lot of people that are reserved and they don't want to talk and they feel uncomfortable in that position of, and that's why I made a point to say, listen, this is somebody's life. We need to discuss this. If you find reason that you don't believe the rest of us, how we think, you got to raise it and we'll discuss it as, you know, reasonable human, human beings, because this is an important thing we need to go over. But the most part, I think we'd all had our minds made up by the time we got to the jury room, but it's important that people just don't go along with the majority. And I, I would really be interested in a study to see if that happens or if people really do vote how they feel. Well, if you think about it, if you get a really strong personality in the room, could they, I don't like using the word bully because it's not really bullying. Influence. Yes. Influencing others in the way that they vote. Yeah. I always enjoyed the times that after a criminal case was over with, that we were able to sit down with members of the jury who were willing to talk to us and, and find out what it was that was going through their mind. Because, uh, you know, oftentimes we'd ask them, so, so what was the, what was the, the one thing that the, the thing that put you over the top to say, yeah, they're guilty. And what they'd come up with was nowhere near what I thought was most important. Really? I would find oftentimes that what they thought about was something that I considered unimportant. So it just goes to show you that, that details matter. You know, just because yeah. I don't think it's important doesn't mean that somebody else isn't going to think it important. It never ceased to amaze me. The the, the one murder case, we uh, we sat down with them and they kind of were like your jury. They, they, they came to a verdict really quickly, but they, they kind of sat around and said, you know what? If, if we go back out there right now with our verdict, they're going to think that we we weren't taking this seriously. And right. we're talking about somebody's life in our hands. Uh, so they literally sat back there for a couple more hours doing nothing, just talking to at least give the appearance that there had been this deliberation really? going on. See, that's one thing that didn't really pop into my head because in our, in our particular case, the trial ended at like 530 in the afternoon. And the judge said, all right, you guys can go back and deliberate tonight and come up with a verdict or you can go home. And we can start this back up first thing in the morning. And everyone was kind of in agreement. Let's go home and we'll finish it out in the morning. So by that time, we had time to think about it. Now, of course, you're instructed. You can't talk about it. You can't look up facts about the case or anything. And, you know, we straight stayed true to that. I did speaking from my point of view, but I kind of already knew which direction I wanted to go in. And once we got back in, we had it hammered out within 30 minutes. And so while it was kind of in the top of my mind, I kind of reconciled the fact that we all had a chance to go home and think about it. And that's why we were able to get that decision rather quickly, because all the evidence or most of the evidence is brought back into the jury room. 
they did not bring the cocaine back into the jury room. The judge said we didn't need to look at that. Blame him for not letting us do that. Uh, but, you know, we didn't really feel the need to go back over a lot of the evidence because we had our minds made up at the end of the day once the trial was over. The the instructions that the, the judge gives the jury, uh, I mean, when they're not followed, they can have disastrous consequences. Uh, in that same trial that I was talking to you about there, uh, uh, the judge uh, said, hey, we're going to dismiss the jury. And they go back and someone, one of the juror members had uh, reported to the judge that one of the other jurors had brought in a roll of duct tape. And, and that's not that big a thing unless you realize that, that, that there was some duct tape evidence in the murder of this little girl that was incredibly important. And it turns out that this juror had actually been doing experiments at home Oh, to yeah. see if it was possible. And so, you know, this is at the end of this case. And this case, I want to say, was like three and a half weeks long. And so you've gone through all this and it came close to being a mistrial because a juror didn't follow the judge's orders. And that's an important point, too. You're talking about, you know, three week trial. I was thinking that all these trials go on for like days upon days. This trial, it was a criminal case. It was about the sale of cocaine and it was over within a day. Now, we came back the next day to deliver the verdict, but you're talking a day and maybe a morning, and it was it was a speedy trial. I mean, they they presented all their evidence, all their witnesses, but when you watch it on TV, you think, well, this is like the OJ trial. Well, it goes on two years. Yes. I'm going to be sequestered, and it's not like that at all. At least it wasn't in my case. Yeah, but you, you, again, you can imagine the hardship that those cases do cause. I, well, granted, they're rare, but the, the hardship that they cause. Yeah. Did you ever have an instance where you were testifying and you had maybe some evidence that is pertinent to the case, either go missing, you couldn't find it, or something happened to it and you had to explain that in front of the, the jury and, and, and the court? Uh, knock on wood, thank goodness, no. Uh, and the reason was, given shout out here, my boss, when I was a, a detective, was a guy named David Malloy, eventually ended up being the chief and he retired now. Now he works with Haida, but he was a stickler for chain of custody. So that it, when a piece of evidence was recovered, it was documented properly, it was uh, it was processed properly, and it was entered into evidence properly. One of the most important activities from a professional standards standpoint that can be done at an agency is a property room audit. Because if your property room has problems, it puts not just one case, but all cases in jeopardy. That's a very solemn, solemn responsibility. Uh, in this particular case, we had both sides of that. We had uh, the issue of the cocaine, which was documented, like you said, sealed, signed for. I mean, they really showed that chain of command where it was uh, the, the drug evidence. But there was another instance where a member of the drug task force got up to testify, and it was about the denominations of cash they gave to the CI. And he could not disclose that to us because the computer he used to document all that information crashed. And he said that they weren't able to get that information back. Now, did that have an effect on me as a juror? A little bit. I thought I, there's got to be a way to get some of that stuff back. So, you know, it's the believability factor there. It does come into play. So um, you really it's it's really strange position to be in when it's something circumstances outside your control. Just imagine how it is nowadays with electronic evidence, cell phones, computers, uh, electronic records, I don't have a deep understanding of those. 
So the evidence people that have to handle those and then download the information and then go through documenting where it came from and why it has to be this person, those people need to be extremely well trained so that the jury will believe them because the jury, they see shows like CSI. And, and, you know, it's just like the, the, you know, you go in and every single person there has about a 10 computer bank and, you know, they've got all these download things and access to every single database that there is. And that's not the way that it is real quick on CSI talking about jury instructions. I remember a judge making a jury instruction and saying things like, listen, cameras aren't everywhere. It may seem like they are, but just because the, the crime wasn't recorded doesn't mean that it didn't happen. It doesn't mean that this person didn't do it. It doesn't mean that they did do it. It just means there's not a recording of the event. Despite what they, they do on TV, you cannot get fingerprints off of water. Okay. That just doesn't happen. And DNA doesn't come back overnight. Exactly. It's called the CSI effect. But but the amount of time that is spent in jury instructions telling the jury what police and crime scene people can't do is getting longer and longer simply because people have expectations coming in there that have been established by media. I think really the purpose of this particular episode, we really wanted to examine uh, the, uh, the idea of law enforcement and from a jury side, and also really at the core wanted to examine, does this jury system work? Is it still the best system available? And at the end of the day, even though that I brought up some concerns and I've even told my son, I said, this would make a great research paper when you're senior year of high school. I said, at the end of the day, I'm able to lay my head down on the pillow at night as the judge was, was gave in the instructions and my conscience is clear. I think we came to the right decision, the right verdict. So in, in essence, yes, I think this particular system is still working. There are some flaws into it that I'd like to see maybe some studies done, but for the most part, yes, it worked and it's a sustainable method of, of, uh, of finding guilt or innocence. Two quick stories to, to illustrate how, how I think you're correct. I asked you what had gone on behind the doors that I don't know about. Well, there's a lot of stuff that goes on in the courtroom that, that the jury doesn't know about. Uh, for example, in one case, you know, you've got two sides of the family. Obviously, motions are high in a murder case. And the grandma of all people starts getting into a verbal altercation uh, with uh, family members from the other side. It got so bad that, that uh, you know, the deputies were coming from all over the place and they had to be separated. And the judge had to admonish her, say, listen, if you do anything else, you're gone. Now, the only thing that the jury knew, because we talked to them afterwards, was that when they came back into the courtroom, there, there were more deputies standing around. No context <laughs> for it. No frame of reference. Yeah. But, but then think about this right here, too. In a case where we had a two-year-old girl that was murdered by her stepmom, dad, biological dad, continued to stand by his wife. And that obviously caused a lot of issues in the courtroom. But one of the things that was also going on was that they were seeking to terminate his, his parental rights. But that was something that couldn't be admitted into court. And you would think that that would be something that would get get back to the jury somehow. But when we talked to him, you know, they were saying, oh, man, we just cannot believe that he still gets to keep the other girls. So, no, it's, it's almost done. He's about to lose her, too. It's, oh, I felt, it's so good to hear that. But they had no clue. So yeah. I do think that, that our, our system, while flawed, is still whenever you introduce a human into something, it's going to have problems. That's an important thing you bring up there because uh, a lot of times people will play Monday morning quarterback and say, well, how could they come to that decision? 
It's because we're only allowed to make our verdict on the information presented to us. And we're not able to go out and investigate or look people up. And just real quickly, I took this defendant at face value. Like he was innocent until proven guilty. That's how I went into it and it came up with my verdict. Now, afterwards, after the case was over, I was curious. So I looked his name up and he had been arrested before for drug offenses. Now, had I looked that up beforehand, how much would that influence my decision? I'm sure quite a bit. That's why it's important to just listen to the facts that are presented in front of you, innocent until proven guilty. Obviously, I'm from one side of the courtroom, the prosecution side. But I do believe that in order for our system to work, that there has to be not just adequate, but an appropriate defense that is mounted on behalf of the defendant. And Mm -hmm. unfortunately, I think that there are cases, there are cases sometimes where that doesn't take place. As society, I don't think we can allow convictions like that to stand because it takes away credibility from the other ones that were justified. You know, when you talk about poverty, I mean, it's kind of a hot button issue, but but I think that's something that we kind of have to look at. What level of defense are we satisfied with? And then once we establish that, what are we as society going to do to ensure that everyone gets that? Well, and I, I, I read that for the most part, because you can have a jury trial or a bench trial. And from what I've read, and when you look at jury trials, they will try their best to make sure that an innocent person isn't convicted. I, I read an article that, that kind of alluded to that fact that in jury trials, that's been the outcome that they've seen through studies, whereas a bench trial may be a little bit differently. So you want to make sure that you get it right. And I think people have that in their conscience because I even said in the jury room, I hate to be the decider of this guy's fate because he could be going to jail for a long time because he was ended up this transaction took place 500 feet of a park. So it was going to add more time on to his sentence. And so it really does put you in a position of I'm affecting this person's life. Judges hate it when their decisions are overturned by appellate courts. And I understand that because I, they're, they're, that means they, they didn't do something correctly or in the best way. One of the most devastating things that could happen as a juror would be to have your verdict overturned because of something a juror did or didn't do. If it's overturned because the judge didn't read something correctly or the prosecutor didn't do something or defense, that's beyond my control. I can live with that. But if it's overturned because of something we did, that's where I start to have an issue. I can't stress this enough. If you are called for jury service to, I mean, put the effort into it as you would Uh, as if it was a family member's life on the line, because I think it is an important thing to do. You can't just sit there and kind of twiddle your thumbs and wait until the thing is over because someone's life's on the line, especially if it's criminal, you know. And you can sit there and say that, hey, you know, my family's law abiding. We're never going to be tried for a a crime. You never know. Not only that, but remember these uh, juries sit on civil cases, too. And the likelihood of you getting sued in our society is pretty daggone high. Yeah. Well, this episode was dedicated to the fact we just want to do an examination of the jury system from both sides and give you some insight, some uh, specific stories from my experience during jury service. And I still have about two weeks left to go, so I may get picked for another jury. I don't know. I can give some more stories later on. But this was really interesting to see the process. And it's really it's a part of our, our history. It's, you know, within our constitution to have a jury trial. And so, you know, you feel like you're doing your civil duty. And you are. Uh, we would love to hear from any of you out there that have uh, served or you have insights. Because I think this would be a helpful episode, not only for uh, 
uh, lawyers, attorneys to listen to get some insight, but also those in law enforcement who are testifying or have testified. So we'd love to hear some other perspectives on the court system. And if you'd like to uh, reach out to us to be a guest, we're always uh, happy to hear from you. You can send us an email at between the lines at virtualacademy.com and you can go to our website to find all of our previous episodes and lots of other uh, interesting stuff. We've got some cool articles to go along with this particular episode. That's at Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. Dot com. And uh, I appreciate your candor and your insight from the law enforcement side, Michael. Hey, well, thank you for your service because it really does matter. <laughs>